making that content from scratch is not easy. Training your teachers from scratch is not easy. And we, you know, our goal is to make high quality, equitable, cutting edge education as easy as possible for districts and as exciting as possible for students. Welcome to Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I'm your host and chief goddess of the PASS Foundation, Annalise Corbin. We know the current model for education is obsolete. It was designed to create fleets of assembly line workers, not the thinkers and problem solvers needed today. We've seen the innovations that are possible within education, and it's our goal to leave the box behind and reimagine what education can look like in your own backyard. Welcome to today's episode of Learning Unboxed. As always, super excited because we get to have conversations about innovations that are happening in education. And joining us today um, is Nikhil Raghav, um, who is the founder and CEO of something called Invent XYZ, which is a program dedicated to bringing high-tech, hands-on education to students everywhere by setting up maker spaces or collaborative workspaces at partner schools across the country. Um, so welcome to the program. We're excited to have you. Yeah, thanks for having me. I really appreciate you guys having this cool podcast. And I mean, I've listened to a couple episodes. Uh, Excellent. So it's really cool that you're kind of sampling all of the coolest innovations. Yeah, there's a lot of stuff out there that's absolutely amazing, despite all the crazy that sometimes is happening in the world of education, right? Um, and yes. so it's really, really great to be able to sort of highlight the really cool things that people are out there doing. And actually, you know, your backstory around getting to this this space, that in and of itself, I think is pretty interesting too. So um, as I understand it, you were selected in 2020 by the University of Pennsylvania's President's, and President's Innovation Prize, which sort of gave you the seed funds to, I think, launch the work that you're doing. So sort of give us the 100,000 foot view of sort of how you sort of came to that particular space. And then we'll get into the weeds about what it is you actually do. Yeah, for sure. Okay, so I've had some vision of this kind of thing since high school. Um, actually, arguably since middle school. Um, but specifically what happened with the Innovation Prize is um, I was seeing that school districts across the country were building maker spaces and innovation labs and fab labs and like were really starting to focus on computer science and STEM. And I'm from like Texas, uh, where all of the district buildings are like they're they're doing bonds every every like five six years they're like massive like hundred hundred million dollar buildings. I was wondering like where's this money going right like that was that was the first curiosity. Um, so then I ended up interviewing fifty four superintendents and assistant superintendents across uh, like a bunch of different districts in the Philly area, which is you know Penn, um, and then also in Texas. Trying to understand, like, where is this going? What's the problems that they're seeing when they build these spaces? And I realized you can build a makerspace. Not, it's not easy, but it's not hard. Um, but the biggest issue is once you have this million, two million dollar facility, or maybe fifty million dollar facility, what do you do with it? A lot of the districts end up really struggling to find people to run them, to develop curriculum for them, and really make sure that every single student gets the hands-on STEM and computer science skills or STEAM and computer science skills that are the hallmark of, of the future. So after that series of interviews, I started uh, you know, making curriculum content and a sort of standardized makerspace um, 
kind of kit, including things like acoustics and lighting and ventilation that most people typically skip, tried to make it as easy as possible. And then, you know, I've showed, showed that, showed some of the renderings, showed some of the work we did at a rural Pennsylvania high school. Um, and then, you know, eventually won the prize. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that that's really intriguing and interesting because I, we've definitely seen the same thing. So our work at PASS over the last 22 years-ish at this point, um, we've seen a lot of really amazing innovations. Um, and space is one of those things, right? We always talk about the fact that you don't have to have truly innovative spaces to do truly innovative teaching and learning. However, we also know that truly innovative spaces make it easier to do the teaching and often to facilitate the learning in a lot of really creative ways. And, you know, there's there's some intriguing conversations because this notion of maker spaces, and I'm sure you found this in your research, has sort of ebbed and flowed over the years. This is not a new thing, right? But one of the things that I saw really early on, and I'm sure that you sort of found this, especially in your interviews, and I'm thrilled that you spoke to all those different superintendents because I think here's one of the things that happens, right? This notion of a maker space is this bright, shiny thing, right? We all think we want it, and we kind of do want it. But to your point, we then raise money, we build this thing, and then we struggle to figure out what to do with it. And it it sits there. And especially some of the cooler, more accessible, really innovative equipment that students could be exposed to, but you don't have folks that know how to use it. And even if they know how to use it, you have folks that have no idea how to build programming content around the use of the tool that allows for the student innovation to happen. Exactly. Yes. You hit the nail on the head right there. Yeah. Yes. So then Invent XYZ was born. So 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 it's out there. It's doing its working. The website's super cool. You can go and sort of see the things that you guys are doing. So so what is the do, I guess, if you will? Yeah. So you hit the nail on the head, especially with the last part are actually like, you know, it started with the space and stuff and we still help schools design spaces. What we're, I mean, kind of trying to do is make it so that like, just like a McDonald's or Chipotle has a standard design and they can just stamp it in and like, you don't have to think about it. I want to make it that easy for schools to make one uh, in their schools. But more importantly, the, the work has really started to evolve around the curriculum or the invent curriculum in our case. and so. Um, we're really trying to make sure that these innovative tools and, and uh, um, software and equipment, all that stuff, gets uh, used effectively. And so we've been building our library of modules that prepares students for five key technologies that are you know, supposed to be the wave of the future um, and are already in many ways making change across industries now. Um, and our sort of special lens on this is we really care about the equity component. I don't like, it doesn't matter if only like 5% of kids learn computer science or learn AI skills, right. Or, or virtual reality or whatever it is. I want to make sure every kid gets it. So the, the way we think about this curriculum is a, how do we integrate the core standards mm-hmm. so that this curriculum can go into English class? Exactly. I love that because that's the same argument I make. Making should not just be about engineering, right? It should be about everything. Exactly. I love it. Sorry, I had to interrupt because that (laughs) deserves cheers and applause. Yeah. And and then, so that core content. And secondly is the technology itself. So that could be web development, AI, um, electronics that connect to the internet, augmented reality, and so on. And then the third part is the industry. So the reason why I separate those things, right, is 
The NFL, for example, is using data science and AI to figure out which players to draft and how to train them. So for example, um, if you know Josh Allen from the Buffalo Bills, first two years in the league, he was like slightly below average in accuracy. In the last couple of years in the league, he's been number three in the league in accuracy. What changed? Well, his form changed. But how did his form change? He actually went to this uh, company that uses a bunch of cameras and computer vision. And so they track the position of all his joints. They try to like measure the torque and things like that. And then they watched his form and saw, oh man, he was like turning his upper body before the legs, like the arm elbow was moving before the legs. And so like his ball would sail wide. And so by viewing that, changing his form became so much better, right? And we can do the same thing. We can use that exact idea in physics, teach physics through sports using AI. So that's, that's really what we're trying to do, make it very easy for schools to introduce innovation. And so it's not just that kids make PowerPoints anymore. I mean, PowerPoints are fine, but that is not work. Or that is not all work. Um, and so really integrate the core content with cutting edge technology and give students a sampling of a ton of different industry applications. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I love that. And I, I love the, the fact that you also... Um, sort of picked up or keyed in on, although you didn't use the word, I know that that was really sort of what you had in mind from a design standpoint, is you're you're coming up with, with components from the curriculum standpoint that truly engage the students. You're making it relevant for them because I think that that's the other thing that happens is we think we have the CNC machines, so we want everybody to make, the, you know, the ubiquitous, you know, um, um, box, right? Or, or whatever it is that we, we used to, there's nothing wrong with shop class. Don't get me wrong. That's not what I'm dissing. But, you know, way back in the day, way before your time, I'm just sure of it. Um, you know, in shop class, everybody had to make, you know, the classic joiner's box, right? That was one of the things that you had to learn. And the box is really, really great. But, you know, only so many kids got a kick out of the box. The reality is, right, that we need to find things that kids are interested in right now, right? So the fact that you're using AI and the physics of sports and you're using all of that to sort of teach from a maker standpoint that's brilliant and that's 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 very accessible right yeah no i mean one of the things that we really care about exactly as you say is engagement and i have like a particular view about engagement i know a lot of people what they will do is they'll they'll try to make something really basic and be like oh if they can do the basic thing it'll be engaging and we can more complicated thing. No, that's not how kids think. It's not how it works. Blinky light. Okay, that's it. <laughs> exactly. But you put that in the context now of like a cool, um, like interactive uh, sensor, right? That it blinks, but then it also does something valuable, like telling me if uh, my, like in, for example, in a meatpacking facility, they have these wireless sensors now that like immediately ring an alarm if the temperature goes too high. But like, you know, give real world context, right? Or like have students learn how to assemble a Nintendo Switch's uh, controller. And so they're seeing something that's real and building up skills in CAD after they built it physically first. And like, we kind of do things in a different order than what most people do. Um, And so I think of it more of like a top-down kind of approach in terms of here's like the like a real problem for example like we're building a web app for a movie theater chain that wants like 
who wants to sell their tickets. This first step is let's just kind of figure out what the user flow looks like and what data the server needs to store. There's no coding there. But you understand if you've done that project, you understand more about how the web and how like everything you use on a daily basis works than somebody who's taken AP computer science and learned how to sort a bunch of numbers using for loops. And then we go in deeper and say, okay, let's expose a little bit more detail into this, design the entire front end, like the user interface. And then now that you've made a mock-up of the user interface, let's go convert that to code. Right. So you're giving way more intuition and context by exposing more and more details, but it's always a real world. Yeah. And and the other thing about that too is you're also starting with the fact that this thing has to be useful, right? It doesn't matter that we designed a great thing if nobody will use it. Right. So asking folks to sort of think about it from the the other side of the entire endeavor. Um, I really like that. So again, yay. <laughs> um, awesome. So, you know, one of the other things um, that I, I really want to sort of dig into the weeds about is because oftentimes what I see is that um, school administrators, superintendents or principals, they're super, super jazzed. They want this makerspace. It's going to be this cool thing in their community. It's going to make their school the school that everybody's going to choose to be able to come to or whatnot, right? And then even if you can find somebody who's qualified to actually man or run the, the place, right? Ultimately, you've got to get your faculty, and I love your point about it's, it's as much about the English and the art teacher as it is the engineering teacher and so on and so forth. How do you, how do you battle the buy-in problem? Mm. Yeah, because okay. I know so. that my listeners are like, we, we've run down this road, right? And this great stuff comes and nobody's willing to learn to use it or willing to, to modify their existing practice in my classroom. I know what I'm doing and, you know, all that sort of stuff. How do you, how do you get around that constraint? That's real, okay. yeah. right? So there are a few ways we think about this. And then feel free to dig in on, like, one of the, one of the, sort of the way we think about it. The first is, I don't expect the English teacher to suddenly become an AI expert. In fact, I don't expect any teacher to become an AI expert. You know, people get PhDs on that thing. So that's, that's not the expectation. The expectation is that the teacher will be able to facilitate the project and will have space to interject with their topic area of knowledge, right? So in the case of one of our projects, which is um, visualize data and make an interactive blog article, using public data such as Chicago crime or sneaker resale databases and, and things like that, they don't need to be the expert in data visualization. We have a library of short 30-second to 5-minute videos by actual experts, for example, an AI engineer from Google in this case, to teach the technical stuff. The teacher then, at the point where the, t- the student is trying to figure out, okay, what am I actually getting out of this chart? What is the conclusion here? What's the story? How do I do this grammatically correctly? What is the like logical flow? All the English stuff is where the teacher can really focus and everything else enhances the English or the social studies or whatever core learning item is, right? I mean, it is going to feel like a little bit of a detour initially, but hopefully the technical content from our side combined with the core content knowledge from the teacher enhances the product and enhances the student buy-in. So that way, instead of the teacher saying, 
please listen to what I'm saying, right? It's you don't have to do that anymore. So so there's less energy spent on acquiring students' attention and more spent on actually hopefully teaching the or like enabling kids to learn the core content is probably what you say. The the second thing we think about is we provide some teacher training um, and support during the semester. So the teacher training is like a half day kind of setup where they go see the actual outline of the project. And I can actually show you what one of those looks like. Um, and so they know the flow that students are going to go through and they'll actually do a snippet of it as if they're the students and kind of figure out, okay, what videos do I need to watch or like what tutorials do I need to assemble this data visualization or like a small version of a, a historical town, for example. Um, and that way they get a snippet and develop a little bit of that oh, I see why kids are going to like this and that empathy or um, there's another word, but yeah. Um, and so that's like providing the support. And then if students inevitably will get stuck during the semester, we have some sort of chat type features. And also we've been doing sort of office hours where we send students on like different virtual tables. And so kids with questions about the same section of the project can all get um, access to like an Invent XYZ expert and hopefully they'll have a similar question. We can answer it really quickly rather than having to give the same answer 20 times. So like let students. So that's that's kind of how we're thinking about it. And then the last step there is at the end of the day, it's going to be a Cotter S curve kind of adoption. Like there's some people who are going to adopt immediately, some people who are going to need some proof, and some people who are never going to adopt. And that's fine. So for the people who adopt immediately, make sure that they have enough support. And actually, it's really important that you like screen this first, right? Like always start with people who will buy in because mm -hmm. if you start with people who don't, they'll torpedo it. They will. Yes. A hundred percent. We call that the three rings of Dante at pass. Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. yeah. So we, we, you know, your, your early adopters, your hesitant adopters, you're never going to adopt. Yeah. <laughs> right. Exactly. Same sort of thing. Yeah. Super smart. Yeah. So then how you get the uh, hesitant adopters, every time we do a project, we do a pre-test and post-test on the core content as well as technical knowledge. And then we have the students present their projects. We try to invite um, the school district leadership as well as some external audience members, so maybe leaders from other districts or like, for example, we had the vice president of Penn as one of the audience members, um, data engineers from various companies. And we like we don't do it the classic presentation where every student gets up and says basically the same thing. What we do instead is we have students tell a story across the presentations. So we'll have them teach what they actually did as a class to the audience. Each one just gets like a sliver of the project. But as they're doing that, this is sort of like a um, richer Feynman technique. Like learn to teach it and you learn it better yourself. So we have them kind of show snippets of the project steps and then also their final results. So it's it's kind of like a cohesive story that you need to see the entire thing rather than just over and over the same thing. So those are the kind of three pillars, right? It's, 
Yeah. And I think that that's super helpful. And I love the fact that the last pillar is based on this notion of an authentic audience. Um, and I tell teachers all the time when they're really sort of struggling with the presentation, and I use that term pretty loosely, just like you did, um, sort of aspect of any time you get involved in problem-based um, teaching and learning is that, you know, an audience of one is never authentic, right? So that, that you know, you, you do all this work and, and you present it to the teacher or to the classroom and that's it. That's not real. Super, super artificial. And it's not going to help somebody learn to your point. And so I love the fact that you've embedded into this the fact that, um, you know, the students have to take the opportunity to actually teach what they know, right? We know that if you can teach it, you understand it. So um, I really like that aspect of it. The other thing that I'm super curious about, and because again, this is one of those things that I bump up against all the time in our own work, is the there's a lot of pushback and I understand why it happens, right? And it's it's valid. It is, it's not a frivolous constraint. It's, it's a mindset that's often tied to the system in which the individual teachers or schools are sitting within, right? And sets of constraints that are way beyond the control of the individual practitioner. Um, it, you know, around this idea of, you know, I have to get through X, Y, and Z content and I have to do it by next Wednesday. So I don't have time to add on this data science thing, right? And so I don't know about you, but we have lots of conversations around this is not an add on, right? It's an enhancement of, or it's an in place of, actually, once you get the handle or the hang of doing this type of teaching and learning, most teachers, they don't go back to the more traditional form because truth be told, it's, it's a lot of work up front, but once you get it, it's a lot less work on the practitioner to be a facilitator than it is to be, you know, the only one in the room that actually has the answer, right? Yes. So, okay, let me, I'll make two comments there. One is the setup, a lot of setup work, and then the sort of variable cost of implementing is very low. In many ways, it's like software engineering or like making a movie. You spend a lot of time and money making the the actual like building the movie and displaying the movie is very cheap. Similarly, uh, project-based, especially like high quality real world project learning is, is a lot like that um, where it takes a lot of setup, but then once you've done it, it's pretty, it's more chill hopefully than actually lecturing to every kid. So, so where I'm going with that, this is the second point is we think about our projects as trying to teach one and a half units of content in one unit's worth of time. So in the case of the uh, interactive data blog project for English, students get to analyze the data set, visualize it, and publish a blog on the web. Um, our project is designed to cover 69 Common Core standards, which is one third of the English requirements for like ninth and 10th grade. Yep, yep. In three weeks. Yeah. In three weeks, you can cover a third of your class requirements. Imagine yep. how much time that frees up. Exactly. Exactly. And when you say that, what's the response? It depends. Yeah. Yeah. That's been uh, my, experience, people, my experience, actually, too. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Some people I've seen, they're like, oh, that's awesome. All right. Done. Mm -hmm. Some people I've seen um, say something to the effect of, cool. But tracking 69 standards is complicated. Do I have to like check off each one separately? It's like, no, that's not the point. <laughs> um, and also, like, if you think of like, this is another side comment, but like a lot of teachers will say something to the effect of our, our scope and sequence is mandated by the state. Right. 
or something to that effect. That's not how that works. Like, I'm surprised at how many teachers or rather how few teachers actually know what the standards say. Yeah, oh, um, 100%. Yeah, I've, yes. Which is like, I, I don't understand. Like, there was this whole like hullabaloo about, uh, you know, uh, Common Core standards being this like, performative nonsense like what are these like weird word problems that don't make any sense and you look at the standards and you look at the worksheets and have like nothing to do with each other correct correct Mm -hmm. yeah standards are literally like you must teach system of equations with at least three variables it's like okay well that's not that hard i mean or at least it's not that strict i think that's because people confuse standard with curriculum and they're not one in the same thing right but they sometimes they believe that they 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 do and i think that out of fairness to teachers i'm gonna be super mindful here right is that um oftentimes the reason this happens is because we have a generation um and it varies depending on sort of when you entered the teaching profession and what your teacher prep program looked like there was a period of time there's a period of time where we stopped teaching standards to to potential educators and and what i mean by that is we stopped we stopped teaching how they were crafted right where they came from to understand how how a standard comes to be and why it's important we had a we had about a 20 some odd year period of time where we just weren't equipping teachers with the knowledge of where that came from. And so we, we we have this odd mixture of teachers who fully understand it because they were immersed in it and, and they may have actually even helped their state create their version, right, of standards. And you've got these teachers who've never really been exposed to it. They only know sort of the rote prescriptive way of teaching because that's how they were trained. And now you've got this sort of kind of hodgepodge that's happening today with this recognition that we have to completely retool the way we think about teaching and learning and yet we don't really know exactly what path forward that should be from a variety of different colleges of eds or even universities that are now starting to dismantle colleges of eds and turn it back into the content areas, right? Um, and we we undid that original version of it years and years ago. So it, it's all coming full circle, but I do think that that's one of the reasons that it happens. But I agree with you, super problematic that a lot of folks don't necessarily understand the ins and outs of what that means, right? Teaching standards, super easy, right? Teaching innovative content takes a little bit more of your creativity and your time. Right, right, yeah. Like like one of the other ones that is like an interesting or like unexpected conclusion that I, you know, I didn't know this, but Common Core doesn't actually mandate like Algebra 1, Geometry, Algebra 2, Pre-Cal sequence. It just says, here are some standards. Kids need to learn this in school. That's all it really said. And in a lot of ways, if you got rid of that like order, not that I'm advocating one way or the other, but if you got rid of that order, you would actually be able to teach things probably more quickly because there are a lot of topics from like geometry that are related to like statistics or like binomial distribution formula shows up in polynomials. And it's like kind of an interesting, unexpected combo. Yeah. Well, you won't advocate for that, but I do. So I'll say it out loud, right? I think this whole idea of the order of courses was decided, you know. 75, 100 years ago by a bunch of, you know, old white dudes sitting around a table saying, let's do algebra one and then, you know, let's let's do algebra two. And we just made this. It's, it's all random. It's, it's not real. Um, it's completely artificial. And to your point, if you, you let go of that and you actually teach standards-based instead of this notion of, of, of prepackaged content or courses, you can teach a lot more. And the other thing that I certainly find too is that you can hit 
not only more standards, but the same standards over and over again in the course of the same amount of time that you have the students. And every time the student's exposed to the standard they've seen before, they get new additional content at greater depth and understanding of the context of that particular standard. So they go from, um, you know, just being able to be introduced to it to full synthesis and application of a standard. And that does not happen in a traditional setting. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And like, uh, I think it was the Kansas... Um, I forget exactly what our role is, but like innovative school planning, something mm-hmm. like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, at the state department level, she said that the reason we have uh, biochemistry physics as the order mm-hmm. is because it's alphabetical order. Mm-hmm. It's like, <laughs> I mean, yeah, that's super innovative, don't you think? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was, that was a really interesting the other thing that i like about what kansas is doing now is like their state board is like specifically saying look you don't have to have separate classes to award credit let's award credit based on the actual content that was learned and like we can award it across different um different like you know traditional like courses um and so that's some, something that i think is really uh a good approach and relevant to Men XYZ as well, because what we're saying is let's embed computer science, AI, um, electronics, AR and VR, and physical product design into every class. And so what we're saying is by the time a kid goes from middle to high school, if you were to uh, issue credit appropriately, these kids have basically done like 900 hours. So like six CTE courses worth, or some states might be more. I think you should award those credits. Let's figure out what the right way to do it is because these kids are in many ways, like even going past what the typical sort of pathway completer person might do. Yeah. Yeah, hundred percent. And the kids that are doing that, they're, they're happy to be there, right? They're, they're not the ones ditching school. Yeah. Right. And, and they're not ditching because they like, they love what they're doing. It's, 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 they're fully immersed in it. And that's super, super wonderful. I always like to sort of close the program recognizing that folks that are listening and our listeners come from all over the world, right? And so um, are thinking about, this is really amazing. Um, I, I, I think that what's happening with the Invent XYZ, I, I want to see that in my own, my own classroom, my own school, my own community. So how do folks... How do folks go about, um, you know, engaging with or being part of the Invent XYZ ecosystem? Yeah. Okay. So relatively easy. And then I'll, I'll say a couple of things. If your school meets a couple of these requirements or like is in a state that has a certain requirement, call us immediately. But um, let's say you're like an individual teacher or principal or assistant soup or something like that. And one of these projects in your school. Um, you can email uh, info at inventxyz.com or email me, Nikhil, at inventxyz.com um, and say, hey, I, I heard your thing on this podcast. Let me learn more. Um, the sort of second thing where I think it makes it a lot easier. So basically, typically, we want every kid to get this. So like our, our pricing is either project-based or building-based rather than student-based. I mean, we may experiment, but I really care about every kid getting it. The second thing is, if your state has a requirement that every single student needs to graduate with a computer science credit, well, good luck finding like enough computer science teachers to get every single student that credit, right? Like, I mean, you can find them, but like, 
teacher shortage. Plus, if someone actually has a computer science background, like they'd rather make 3x in industry. And if you somehow manage to find, you know, like five teachers for a 2,000 person school, like uh, now you're paying 5x the cost of what you would otherwise because you have five teachers versus just one. Instead, you can work with InventXYZ. We'll help you in, include and embed computer science and all of the stuff that we've been talking about across every class, get every student that credit and more, and save the school like half, like with half the cost. So if you're in, um, I'll list off the states that I know have this requirement. There are a few others that have some sort of similar-ish requirement. If you're in one of these states, like, you should probably call them. Those states are Nevada, Arkansas, South Carolina, and then recently um, Nebraska and um, Tennessee. Rhode Island kind of has like an unofficial mandate, but like every kid is kind of already doing that. And then several states are now also requiring computer science be integrated into K-8. Um, it's a little unclear exactly which states are mandating that it must be integrated versus just having standards that say that. Um, but I know for a fact that Texas just mandated that it must be integrated in K-8 and districts have until basically 2024. So like one school year to figure out how to do it. Making that content from scratch is not easy. Training your teachers from scratch is not easy. And we, you know, our goal is to make high quality, equitable, cutting edge education as easy as possible for districts and as exciting as possible for students. Yeah. Absolutely. So in other words, reach out. The message is reach out. You are there to help. And there are options available to individuals in the school. So I want to thank you very much for taking time out of your day, for sharing the work that you're doing. Um, Invent XYZ is absolutely amazing. And, uh, you know, a resource and, and a tool and a way of thinking that I think everybody should 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 give a little time to. So uh, absolutely grateful. We will post um, on the on the on the show notes, um, you know, resources, the ability to contact um, and to get more information. I know that you have, um, you know, video available. So anything that you want to uh, share out with us, we will make sure our listeners get access to. So sure. thank you. And then let me leave you with a preview of one of our projects. Perfect. So this project is for world history class. Yep. Where students get to recreate. A historical civilization as a video game and learn from the head of a real video game studio. Hi, and welcome to this masterclass on world building with Unreal Engine 5. I'm Ryan Manning, head of Bad Rhino Studios, authorized Unreal Engine instructor and YouTube educator. I've partnered with Invent XYZ to bring you this masterclass on world building with Unreal Engine 5. In this series, you'll be using Unreal Engine 5, one of the world's most open and advanced real-time 3D creation tools behind projects such as Fortnite and The Matrix Awakens, to build a historically accurate port city from the 1800s. Throughout this course, you'll be utilizing the tools within Unreal Engine 5 Editor to place content, create materials, import models and content, create blueprint prefabs, create realistic lighting and time of day, and ultimately assemble everything together to recreate a port city from the 1800s. The skills you learn in this masterclass will prepare you for what it's like to work within the real-time engine industry and give you a foundational working knowledge of Unreal Engine 5. So let's get started. That's super cool. I think that kids would love that. 
Yeah, we've had a couple of kids doing this project. Mm-hmm. Every time someone else walks behind them, they go, whoa. Uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love it. That was amazing. What a great way to end our conversation. So thank you so much. It was such a joy to talk to you today. Yeah, same here. Thank you for joining us for Learning Unboxed, a conversation about teaching, learning, and the future of work. I want to thank my guests and encourage you all to be part of the conversation. Meet me on social media at Annalise Corbin and join me next time as we stand up, step back, and lean in to reimagine education.